ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ಅಪರೋಕ್ಷಾನುಭೂತಿ ಇಸ್ ದ ಪಾತ್ ಆಫ್ ನಾಲೆಜ್ ದ ಹ್ಯೂಮನ್ ಕಂಡೀಷನ್ ಇಸ್ ಅಂಡರ್ಸ್ಟುಡ್ ಹಿಯರ್ ಆಸ್ is as the unfortunate result of ignorance ignorance about what ignorance about our true nature who we are the proposition is the claim is if only we know ourselves as we truly are then all our problems would be solved it is because we do not know who we are what we are that we make a mistake from ignorance comes error we do not know that we are this immortal unchanging consciousness and we make a mistake we think we are the body and mind which is presented to this consciousness in front of this consciousness or illumined by this consciousness and once we think we are body and mind and we don't think it we feel it it's our reality then starts samsara and all our efforts to free ourselves from samsara if the root cause is ignorance then the solution can only be knowledge you see what cures ignorance is knowledge that's why in the last few verses which we were studying they were contrasting ignorance and knowledge what is ignorance it is taking the body to be myself taking the body to be the atman this is sometimes a technical word like atman creates unnecessary confusion i think i am the body and that's ignorance and first what he does is shankaracharya he cuts away chips away at this ignorance showing us how contradictory it is how foolish it is to think that i am the body a series of arguments like the body is continuously changing it is our own experience we don't have to be told that but he draws our attention to those uh, to that to those changes from childhood to teenage to young age middle age old the body is changing and i have the feeling that i am the same person in all the in this changing stream of matter called the body to take the unchanging and the changing to be one and the same reality how contradictory this is, this is ignorance what greater ignorance can there be than this the body is an object of knowledge i am aware of the body i am the one who is aware of the body but the one who is aware and what we are aware of to take them to be one and the same thing i am aware of the glass i never say i am the glass and yet i am aware of the body and all its functioning i say i am the body without any question whatsoever vedanta wants us to ask these questions how is the body any different from any other object there we the mind will give some answers some doubts and there are answers to those also but the question must be asked how is it different he gives another uh, example a person who sees the pot he says my pot he never says i am the pot when you say it's my pot you don't say i am the pot my car i never say i am the car and we happily say my body i am the body we normally do not say i am the body but that's what we mean that's how we behave so shankaracharya gives a series of these arguments more than arguments you know in, in the deeper sense these are not just arguments they are not arguing like a lawyer to prove that you are not the body to take the body as the self is ignorance he is not arguing like a lawyer what he is doing is he is pointing out certain facts which we experience all the time but we do not pay attention to it pointing it out body is changing you are unchanging body is an object you are the knower of the object body is insentient you are sentience itself body you say my body and you say i am the body these facts which are indubitable it's a fact of our experience he is just pointing it out and showing that then now to take the body as myself i myself what greater ignorance can there be and then he comes to if this is ignorance then what is knowledge we saw in the last 
um, class Brahmaivaham Samashant, the 24th verse. Satchidananda Lakshana Naham Deho Asadrupa Jnana Mityuchyati Budhi. I am Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss, Satchidananda Lakshana. Peace, not peaceful. Shanta here means peace itself. That which is reflected in our minds as an experience of peace, the source of that I verily am. Samaha, in all conditions of life, Whatever the condition of the body, whatever the condition of my external life, I am the same unchanging consciousness. Hence, I cannot be the body. He says, it's a body is an appearance, like a dream body. Asadrupaha, and the appearance called the body, I cannot be it. This is knowledge. If we ever feel like this, if we, if we know this, if we understand this, and we realize this, then that is said to be knowledge, as opposed to ignorance. Now he goes further. 25th verse. Nirvikaro nirakaro Nirvikaro nirakaro Niravadyoham abhyayaha Niravadyoham abhyayaha Naham deho yasadrupo Naham deho yasadrupo Jnanam mityuchyate budhehi Jnanam mityuchyate budhehi Nirvikara, I am without any change. Nirakara, without form. Niravadya. I'll talk about that a little later. Beyond sin, actually, not blemished by any sin. Abhyayaha not subject to decay and um, not subject to being diminished or reduced. Abhyayaha. I am. But what am I not? I am not the body asadrupaha. Asadrupaha, the appearance of the body, I am not the appearance, this appearance called the body. This is uh, knowledge. Such is knowledge. Wise declare this to be knowledge. Jnanam ityuchyate budhei. Let's look at this more closely. The word nirvikara literally means without vikara, without vikara. Vikara means change. Vikara means change. Change, not just uh, any change. There is a sense of uh, change which is negative, change and decay. For example, uh, I have a disease in the body, so that's a change but not a good change. It will it, be called vikara. In fact, in, in the gospel, sometimes the word vikara is used as, for, as a disease, vikara. So, a kind of disease, mind also can have a disease, that is a vikara. So vikara is a change. And he says, I am beyond any change. You see, change is there, change and decay are a common fact of life. Take a plate of food and put it out on the table, an hour or two later, it will be cold. Few hours after that, it will be stale. Few hours after that, it will become rotten, start rotting. And in a day or two, it will become a health hazard. That is vikara, subject to change and decay. And our bodies are made of the same stuff. So why doesn't the body rot immediately? Because all the time, life forces, prana, which is coursing through our body, Breathing, blood circulation, the assimilation of food, defending the body against uh, uh, germs and bacteria. Our life forces are continuously fighting a battle. There's a battle for survival of the body. The body is sub constantly subject to the forces of vikara. Decay, change and decay. But it's not happening because um, of the life forces, prana. Very busy. We are not aware of what a tremendous amount of activity is going on there. We are aware of what a tremendous amount of activity is going on in this big city we live in, in LA. Each of our bodies is no less than this city. If you imagine all the cells rushing through, a little cut and white blood cells rush to that point, uh, how oxygen is being transmitted throughout the body, um, the lungs pull in oxygen, the blood cells, they absorb uh, oxygen and, and 
how food is assimilated, food and drink, how waste materials are eliminated from the body. So many things are happening simultaneously all the time. Prana. The moment prana leaves this body, what we call death. Death is when the prana leaves this body. The subtle body transmigrates. It leaves this body and goes to other worlds. The moment that happens, the body immediately starts decaying, vikara. And very, very soon, much sooner than a plate of food left out, very, very soon it's a health hazard. It has to be disposed of, buried or cremated or whatever. So vikara, the body undergoes vikara all the time. The mind too undergoes vikara. Depression, chronic depression. It's a big problem, not only in this country, all over the world. Maybe increasing in the modern age. I read this beautiful and haunting Memoirs of Madness, William Styron. He was a great novelist. And uh, he, because he's a good writer, he can actually write about his own experiences of deep depression, chronic depression. Vivikara. He is almost driven to suicide. And luckily, someone saved him. Later, when he felt more or less normal, he writes, Now when I look back, why did it seem imperative to kill myself? Then it seemed that the only way of coming out of the suffering is to kill myself. Now when I look back, I see there's no reason at all. There's no reason to do it. So, vikara. That's vikara at the level of the mind. And we are constantly subject to the forces of vikara. Body and mind. And yet, there is something in this body and mind which is aware of the body and the mind and the vikara. We, dwelling in the body, we are very much aware. Of course, who, when are we more aware of the body than when it is sick? It's the definition of a healthy body is that you are not aware of it. Aware of the body is that when I am hungry or tired or sick or ill, miserable, you are aware of the body, you are aware of the mind. So, there is something within us that's aware of it. Now, that, that which we are aware of the body and mind and the vikara in the body and mind, the suffering in the body and mind, that awareness is the real cause of our suffering. Because we are identified with the body and mind, when the body undergoes decay, change, suffering, I am suffering. When the mind, even more so, when the mind is depressed or angry or irritated, I am depressed, I am angry, I am irritated. What Vedanta is telling us is, you are no more the body or the mind. You are no more the body than you are the mind. You are the observer of both. You are the illuminator of both. You are the consciousness in which the body-mind events take place. The very experience of body and mind arises in your consciousness, subsists in your consciousness, and fades away in your consciousness. When? Every day in the night, when we go to sleep, we completely become unaware of the physical body. If I were the body, then my my mind, my consciousness would be so tied to the body that even when I am sleeping, I would have the feeling, the awareness that I am a body sleeping on the bed. But I don't do that. I dream and in my dreams I go all over the world and have different experiences in the dream. Which means somehow the consciousness is not tied to this body. The body can exist and the consciousness can go on imagining and experiencing things without being even being aware of the body, as in a dream, every day. So the, the consciousness which is aware of the body is actually not tied to the body. We are the witness of the vikara of the body. We are witness to the vikara of the mind. Now, consider this. That which is the witness to the Vikara of the body, the illness, the suffering of the body, or the pleasures of the body. Does it have vikara? Think about it. Every change that we notice in the body, the suffering, the problems in this body and in the mind, we are aware of it. That's how we notice it. After all, why are we miserable? Because I feel the pain. The Vedanta will ask you, do you feel the pain? Of course I feel the pain. That's why I'm suffering. If I didn't feel it, I wouldn't be suffering. But the very fact, you mean, which is a subtle point, 
The very fact that you feel the pain means that you are the knower of the pain. The pain is an object of your knowledge. The suffering is an object of our knowledge, of our awareness. The awareness itself does not have suffering or, or illness or pain. It is that which is aware. It's like whatever is in the room is illumined by the light. The light illumines the glass and the table and, and the people. But the people of the glass or the table are not in the light. The light illumines them. In our awareness, all these events are happening, all these experiences are taking place. The awareness is not tied to them. They, they do not belong to the awareness. Awareness just illumines them. Another fact. In your awareness, there was health. In your awareness, there is you don't feel too good now. In your awareness, after some time, you'll again feel good. Which means that vikara, the forces of change and decay, they come and go like tides, they ebb and flow. The awareness remains constant. Which means the awareness again is not tied to them. If the vikara changes, were actually of the awareness, then the awareness would come and go with the changes. If the changes come and go and you are aware of both the presence of the illness and absence of the illness, presence of health and absence of health, then in that case you are tied neither to health nor to illness. Neither health belongs to you nor illness because it comes and goes. The clouds in the sky do not belong to the, uh, the sky. They come and go. go. White clouds and little clouds and no clouds and dark clouds. All of them come and go. So vikara belongs to the body. Vikara belongs to the mind. The observer of the body and mind, the consciousness which we are right now, each one of us, which shines upon the body and mind, which shines in the mind, that consciousness does not have vikara. Does not have vikara. By the very fact that it is the observer, the experiencer, the illuminer of the vikara. Hence consciousness is nirvikara, beyond change and death. Beyond change and decay. Beyond change and decay. That does not mean that change and decay will not happen. Oh, now I've attended the Vedanta class. After this, no more, I won't get the flu or anything like that. No. What, the change and uh, decay which happens in the body and mind, even the mind, may come and go. But we become aware of that. And that we, are, we, are, we have this little space that develops between yourself as the consciousness and the change and the problems of the body and mind. That's the, in fact, it's even wrong to say that the space develops. It's there. And we are free of it. We are free of these changes. Nirvikara. How is this possible? Why does the vikar of the change, uh, change and decay affect the body? It affects the mind, but it cannot affect the consciousness, the Atman, the self. Why not? Because, it's, as he says next, nirakara. Nirakara. Nirakara means without form. Consciousness has no form. Akara means form. Form means everything in the world outside which we see has a form, a visual form. What you hear has a form again. Sound, smell, taste, everything is different from the other. They are diff we are aware of the differences. One sound and the other. One form and the other. One person we see and another person. Because of the differences in form. One taste and the other. One smell and the other. Because of the differences in form. Now, that which is aware of form, does it have form? If it had form, what proof would there be that it has form? Every time we talk about form, we experience it. And if that which is experiencing the consciousness within had form and we experience that form, yes, I have experienced the form of consciousness. Be careful. If you have experienced it, it's not you. It's an object of your experience. If the experiencer has form, who is experiencing it? If you do not experience it, what right do you have to speak about the form of, of an experience? Do you follow the logic? We can speak about form, we can think about form, we can assert that there is form only when we are aware of it, when we experience it in some way. And the experiencer itself 
cannot become an object of its own experience. Hence, you cannot say that we can see any experience, any form in the experiencer. The experiencer is beyond form. This play of form and formlessness is very interesting. Our true nature, the Atman, is formless. In fact, if you see the world outside, it has a form. The body has a form. The moment you go to the breath, a little deeper, subtler, what form does the breath have? Well, you can think of it in a particular way. Go deeper, the mind, thoughts in the mind, ideas, emotions, what form do they have? Almost formless, you can say. Still, there is, you can imagine a form. Beyond the mind, you the observer, the witness of the mind, what form can you have? So, the reality of all forms is the formless Atman. And the formless Atman itself, Atman or Brahman, is experienced as the forms of this universe. Whenever you experience anything, it's with form. That which experiences is without form. We are without form, nirakara. Our real, real uh, nature is formless. And once we know that we are without form, interesting thing is, you're not afraid of form anymore. Being without form, we can live in and act through forms, through these bodies. Bodies have forms, we can act through them. There's absolutely no, no, no problem at all. Sri Ramakrishna gives the example of God being with form and without form. How is it possible for the same thing to be with form and without form? He gives the example of water. Water, formless. Why do you say water is formless? One characteristic of the formless is, whichever form you put it into, it will take the form of that. Look at the form of the water here, in this glass. You take it in the palm of your hand, it will have a different form. Put it in a bowl, it will have a different form. The form is not of the water. The form belongs to the glass and the palm of your hand and the bowl. It doesn't belong to the water. So the formless usually appears in the form of the, of the uh, manifested form, in, in, as, man, as a manifested form. The water in itself is formless. And Sri Ramakrishna says, because of the intense cold generated by the love of the devotees who wish to see God in a particular form, Krishna or Jesus or, or Durga or whatever, that formless, the water is like, it, it gets solidified, it freezes into different forms of ice, icebergs. And then what happens? Sri Ramakrishna says, when the sun of knowledge rises and shines down upon the ice, it melts back into water. Now, that which was formless appeared as a form and then again becomes formless. Remember one thing, it's quite clear that when it, even when it, it had a form of the iceberg, it was still the same thing, the same water. And in fact, what Vedanta tells us is, the formless Atman, pure consciousness, itself appears as this universe. That's a different subject, it will come later on, but it's good to keep it in mind. I, the pure consciousness, am appearing as this universe. I'm jumping far ahead of, it's all going to come later, but I'm jumping far ahead. But since I have started this, let me tell you, I'll give you a little uh, a metaphor, or an analogy actually. Imagine a movie. There are people in the movie, things are happening, good things happen, bad things happen. And if we are identified with our favorite character in the movie, people become so identified that when the favorite character, when the hero or heroine is, is uh, suffering, they can cry with that person. Uh, when they are happy, you can, you can you'll smile. You're, we are so identified with our favorite character. We undergo all the uh, vicariously, the sufferings, the, the joy and the anger and indignation, all of that we feel. And the, a good movie should make us feel that because it make us, makes us identify easily with the characters. But we also realize we are sitting in the audience watching a movie out there in the screen. I am not in the movie. I am somebody watching the movie. Now, the movie itself, 
all the happenings in the movie, the characters in the movie with which we become completely identified and if we forget ourselves, then the movie is samsara. The movie is samsara. This is what we are, we are, the movie is going on. We are part of it now. We have forgotten our true nature as the audience sitting in, the, in their chairs and watching. If we can separate ourselves from the movie, Separate ourselves, you cannot do it physically because the body is also part of the movie. Even the mind is part of the movie, as is the external world. As the consciousness watching the body, mind, and through the body, mind, the external world, we are the audience sitting in our chairs comfortably, maybe eating popcorn, <laughs> and watching the movie. It's no problem, enjoy it. Laugh, cry, be indignant, be a critic, whatever. But you are safe from the movie. That's how you really enjoy a movie. If you're in the midst of, an, of, of a real earthquake or the real you know, tsunami coming and, um, or an alien invasion, that's more like a Hollywood movie. If you're really part of it, then it's not very enjoyable. Then it's not very enjoyable. And then, then you'll be terrified. But if you sit, you're, you're aware, you're sitting comfortably in a, in a comfortable uh, seat in, in a beautiful theater and IMAX or something, and you're watching it, enjoyment. It, it's sheer enjoyment. Even the terrible things are enjoyment. Movie is samsara. Detach yourself from the movie and watch it as consciousness. You are the witness, Sakshi. This is the teaching of Sankhya. As a witness consciousness, apart from body, mind and nature. And if you see the whole thing, the movie hall, the theater, and all these little the people sitting there and watching the movie, the movie itself, the people sitting in the audience watching the movie, and the whole theater, all of it together, is the god of religion. The totality. He or she or it is the theater, the movie projected, and the few, and all of them are actually in the audience. Some of them are enlightened. They know that I'm sitting in the audience and enjoying the movie. Some of them are not enlightened. They've forgotten they are sitting in the audience and enjoying the movie. Even when they are in the seat and watching the movie, they have become so identified with one of the characters in the movie that they enjoy with the character, they suffer with the character, they hope and fear, everything is there, and they are unable to separate themselves. Normally, it doesn't happen in the movie. There are stories in India of theatrical performances which were so realistic, or maybe not, they were not very realistic, but the people there were, at that time were simpler. And this simple village folk becoming so identified with the characters. So when the demon is threatening the, uh, the hero of the movie, you know, or torturing the uh, uh, hero and there's an evil person, and a person in, in the audience actually takes out his shoes and rushes to the stage to, to beat up the, you know, take the side of the... It happens, you get identified. There's... I saw this video of two boxers, very fit athletes, you know, very tough two young men and fighting it out on, on the stage and boxing. And suddenly this old lady jumps into the ring <laughs> and she rushes at one of the boxers, takes out her shoe and starts hitting it. <laughs> She's the mom of one of the boxers. And it's real, it happened. She, she can't take it anymore. This guy is beating up my little boy. And her little boy is like, Mom, what are you doing? You're embarrassing me, stop. You get identified. You're not aware of the difference. Oh, I just cannot but tell this story. It's not particularly relevant, but it's a theatrical performance which actually happened in India. And it was one of the famous scenes in Ramayana. Towards the end of Ramayana, when Sita can't take it anymore and she prays to the earth, her, her, her mother, to take her back into the earth. It's called Sitar Patal Pravesh. The Sita enters into the earth, back into the earth again. So that's a very dramatic and very uh, tragic, it's a sort of climax of uh, one of the high points of Ramayana, a very tragic scene. Uh, so these little boys, and it's a true story. One of the persons who was present there told me, these little boys who were students of our um, one of our ashrams in India, they were performing that. And 
uh, one little boy was Rama, one little boy was Sita, and there were others who were little boys who were different characters. And the scene was that uh, Sita prays desperately to Mother Earth that I can't take this anymore, this suffering anymore. Let me go back to you, to, to, the, to your lap. And at that time, where she's standing, it's a mark with a cross, or the little boy standing, there's a trap door. And there's a person sitting under the wooden stage who, when he hears Sita's um, prayer, he opens the trap door and the little kid falls to his lap and he closes the trap door. And that's how they uh, play with the special effects. I think Hollywood has progressed a lot since then. <laughs> but what happened was, Sita prayed, and it's, it's actually happened. The little boy is praying, Oh, Mother, open up and take me back to your lap. Nothing's happening. And the audience, of course, they enjoy the, the discomfort of the little kids, and they're, they're, they're sniggering and, and laughing, <laughs> and they're, they're enjoying it thoroughly. But the boys, are, the little kids, you know, they are very self-conscious. They, they know it's all going wrong. <laughs> and then nothing's happening. Two or three times Sita prays. And then the boy was acting as Rama. He shoves her aside and he says, let me try. And he prays, Mother Earth, open up. And at that moment it opens up and the Rama goes inside. <laughs> and it's all true. And later on they caught hold of the, that guy who was sitting under the trap door. What happened? He said, I'm so sorry. It was so hot and there were mosquitoes and I was sweating and I felt dozed off. And suddenly heard Mother Earth open up. So I opened up but Rama fell into my lap. Anyhow, that's a movie. It's just light and sound. And it's just special effects on the screen. Even a theater has real actors. But here, it's light and sound and special effects on the screen. If you're able to detach yourself from it, not even detach, the language itself is misleading. If you're able to recognize that you are always and you were always detached from it, then this is called Sankhya Buddhi. Sankhya, the philosophy of Sankhya, the witness. And all of it is one reality, God or Brahman, Saguna Brahman. That is called Kali. If somebody asks, who is Kali? Who is Durga? The whole theater and all those souls sitting there watching the movie and the movie itself, all of it taken together, the totality is God or Kali or Durga or whatever you call it. And Nirguna Brahman, here is the very interesting thing. It can be compared not to the movie, not to the souls, people sitting there in the movie, not to the entire theater, but the space in which the entire theater is imagined. There is no theater, no movie, no individual souls. There is only a luminous space in which without existing, I am using the words very carefully, without actually existing, the whole show appears. That luminous space is Nirguna Brahman, the qualityless Brahman, the ultimate reality, and Vedanta says, that thou art. Swami Vivekananda, one alone exists. It appears as nature, soul. Nature, movie. Souls, the ones who watch the movies. But the underneath all of them is one reality. If you take it to be real, Saguna Brahman, the divine mother's play. Beyond the reality of the reality is you, the luminous space. Pure existence, pure consciousness, pure bliss, in which the whole play appears. Anyhow, we have gone far afield. The whole thing will come later on. Nirakara, that luminous space which we are, is without any form. All forms appear and disappear within it. Niravadya. Niravadya means um, sinless or unblemished by sin. But actually, if we go a little deeper into the etymology of the words, it actually means a wound, not wounded by sin, not cut by sin, not harmed by sin. This feeling of guilt that I have done something which I should not have done, I have said something which I should not have said, and I have done something wrong. Is something wrong or bad within me? This sense, it actually harms a person. You know, it, it, it's something that cuts. That's the word, what the word refers to. You know, somebody said, uh, 
moral laws. Somebody asked this question. You keep speaking about ethical laws or moral laws. I understand laws of physics. One cannot violate laws of physics because you cannot break them. If you try to break them, you are in trouble. I mean, nobody has to put up you know, traffic signs, do not violate the law of gravity, because you cannot. You jump up the freeway, you're going to come crashing down. <laughs> no police has to enforce, enforce the law of gravity. But the traffic laws have to be enforced. The laws of ethics have to tell the truth, be unselfish, they have to be enforced. So somebody asked an interesting question, why are you calling them laws? I can break them, I can tell a lie. I'm telling the truth, I may as well tell a lie. What's there to prevent me? So how are the laws if you can break them? You see, in contrast with laws of physics, you cannot actually break the laws of physics. Well, the answer was very interesting. I found it in a book and the, the author says, we cannot break moral laws. We only break ourselves against them. We break ourselves against them. This word avadhya means that is, is a cut, a, some damage done to the integrity of the person. When the person does something, he or she is aware that it is wrong. Consciously doing something wrong, hurting another person, telling a lie or something. And we're continuously damaging ourselves. We are breaking ourselves against these laws. It apparently seems that I have broken an ethical law, but I have not. Actually, I have damaged myself. I have destroyed a part of myself. And he says, the one consciousness which is aware of the body and mind is niravadya. It is not affected by sin. Now one must be very careful here. The immediate thing will be, oh, so that I can do anything wrong and I will not be affected? Correct. You will not be affected. Advaita says, you will be, you will be the consciousness which, which is aware of doing something wrong and you'll be aware of getting the consequences of doing something wrong also. Unchanged consciousness. Sri Ramakrishna says, if you eat chili, your mouth will burn. Your mouth will burn. So you'll be aware of eating the chili and you'll be aware of the burning of the mouth. That awareness remains one and unchanged. If you're willing to take the consequences of going to jail or being dishonored or, uh, or the guilt which comes in the mind, all of that will come if I do something wrong. All the results will come. If I do something good, all the results will come. But what they are saying here is, and it's a very important point, in morality and in immorality also, in the good and in the evil also, one consciousness shines through. It is in that awareness that everything takes place. Some people might not like it because people want to draw a strict line between good and evil. But the fact is, good and evil is also a spectrum. There is some place where the blackness fades into grey. There is some place where the grey fades into white. And the opposite also, white becomes grey and grey becomes black. At, from a very small, narrow perspective, right and wrong. The law defines it, our conscience tells us this is right and wrong. From a larger perspective, from the point of view of pure consciousness, existence, consciousness, bliss, it is niravadya. It is not affected by our good and evil, our dharma and adharma. Remember, dharma and adharma, good and evil, will still continue giving their consequences. It does not, it's not a go-free card, you know. We're not allowed to go scot-free because we have attended a Vedanta class. So, all those consequences will keep coming, but we know ourselves to be the witness of all of that. Once we know ourselves to be the witness of all of that, actually we will not be prompted to do wrong things. After all, why do we do wrong things? We do things knowing them to be wrong because we cannot resist either fear or temptation. There's something so attractive that it, it tempts me to step beyond the limits of, of morality. Or something so terrifying that I'm forced to tell a lie or do something wrong. Once I know myself to be the unchanging, immortal consciousness, Right now, and I always have been, what shall I fear and what shall tempt me? What is there to tempt me and what is there to scare me? Nothing. In fact, a sign of enlightenment is abhayam, fearlessness. The rishi, when he teaches the emperor Janaka, and the emperor becomes enlightened, the master, spiritual master says, thou hast attained fearlessness. 
instead of saying you have become enlightened he says abhayam vai prapto si janaka you have reached fearlessness there is only one ground which is beyond fear that is this non dual existence consciousness bliss so niravadya consciousness itself is niravadya abhyaya everything gets used up you know about this sense of sin swami vivekananda this country again and again pointed it out when he in his visit to the west that sinners it's a sin to call ye so to call a person a sinner it's a sin to call a person a sinner you are children of immortal bliss you are one with god nay you are god himself how can you be a sinner this is the exact meaning of the word niravadya does that mean he is denying evil does that mean he is denying good and bad of course not good and bad play out at a much lower level at the level of the world at the level of the body and level of the mind you say swami that's where we are true and therefore we are affected strongly by good and good and evil and the wise person will always stick to the good and avoid evil but also know whether we are enlightened or not enlightened the truth right now is we are beyond good and evil our 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 inner reality the atman the pure consciousness is niravadya untouched by all of this proof terrible guilt terrible suffering why did i do that oh i wish i hadn't done that how is that this person who is suffering so much from guilt so much from sense of worthlessness i have met so many such people how can you say that person is free of free of guilt or free of um, the good and evil unhurt by sin niravadya how can you say that simple proof at every day in the night when that person falls asleep in deep sleep when the mind shuts down what happens to his guilt does he have a very deep and restful sleep but also a guilty sleep no when the mind shuts down the world disappears and the little person also disappears the person who felt i am this little person with all these sins and my sense of worthlessness the whole thing disappears when you just just go to sleep so i say swami are you recommending that we spend our time sleeping no i am making a point here i exist when i am awake i exist when i am dreaming otherwise who's dreaming i exist when i am sleeping otherwise who's sleeping i may exist in a switched off form mind is shut down but that means i can exist without the guilt and worthlessness and and, this, and the idea of sin i can exist and i do exist that idea comes and goes with the mind therefore very clearly consciousness it's, itself is niravadya it's demonstrated there's no way of getting around it yes the mind when it awakens again it will awaken with its all its ideas and all all its memories and guilt or whatever naham deho hyasadrupo and therefore i am not the body he says body asadrupa asadrupa means literally non real it means false something that appears in a dream we have a body i am lying safely on my bed when in a dream i might be um, you know dreaming i'm standing on a very high cliff or a skyscraper on the ledge and about to fall off terribly anxious or being chased by a tiger or something like that scared anxious in a lot of trouble but actually i'm asleep safely on my bed so that dream body which i see in my dream is it a real body is it anything real no it was imagined by my mind in a state of dream when i wake up do i feel that have i put that body to sleep safely in bed in some dream world because i have to go back when i go back to dream i'll inhabit that body again no it's gone it was never there it was imagined and he's saying from the point of view of pure consciousness this body is also just like that it's imagined in pure consciousness that beautiful analogy which i just gave imagine an infinite vastness filled with light in that imagine a movie theater appears appears not a real theater in that imagine many kinds of movies are being played 
In that, imagine that you are sitting in the theater and watching a movie. In reality, neither the movie exists, nor are you sitting in a chair and watching a movie, nor even the theater exists. It's only that luminous space which is there. In Sanskrit, they have a word for it, chidakasha, the space of pure consciousness. They speak of chidakasha, chittakasha, mahakasha. Mahakasha, physical space, this one. Here. Chittakasha, space of the mind. Very clear in dream. Because in dream you inhabit a world. In dream we have a world. We actually experience space and time and people and things like that. Where is it taking place? In reality it's taking place in the mind of the dreamer. So it's, it's called the space of the mind. Chittakasha. Which is there even now. And Chidakasha. That luminous space. Pure consciousness. Existence consciousness place. That is Chidakasha. At the risk of going off topic again, follow this carefully. Just, just walk with me. We'll go from here, physical space, to Chidakasha. Right now, sitting right here, you don't have to move an inch. Here is the world, the world which we experience. Here is a room, here are people. You can see the Swami and the shrine and everything. It's in space, all of it. That's our experience, stage one. But consider, is that all that there is? No. Our experience of this space, where, how does it take place? Consider the epistemology of it. Light is reflected of all these objects, come to, comes to our eyes, goes into the mind, conveyed into the mind, and an image of all of this is created in the mind. I'll repeat that. What we are experiencing now as, as an image, just like this, in the mind. You are not directly look, experiencing all these things. You are experiencing an image created by your nervous system and brain in your mind. Dispute that? No, you cannot. Not only seeing, hearing. Are you actually hearing my voice? Swami, yes, of course. No. Even the physics will tell you that. Basic physiology tells you that. Sound waves are just coming into the ear and then some vibration is set up within the inner ear and then through nerve it's converted no longer sound waves also it's converted into electrical impulses no sound there it is transmitted through the nerves into the brain somewhere and the brain it, the whole thing is again recreated and it presented to the mind as sound is this what is not is this not what is happening forget vedanta forget religion spirituality anything just modern science this is exactly what is happening. All our experience is a virtual experience. It's all taking place in the mind right now. Otherwise it's impossible. So what we are experiencing is Chittakasha, not Mahakasha. Our entire experience of Mahakasha, physical universe, is actually taking place in the mind. One Swami beautifully put it in Hindi. He said, Shant man me koi samsar nahi dekha hai bhala. In a peaceful mind, nobody has ever experienced samsara. Suffering, desire, frustration, rage. Imagine, if you make the mind peaceful, deep meditation, absolutely calm and peaceful and serene and joy, where is samsara? How is that possible? We sort of tell a story to ourselves. Oh, it's out there. You're just sitting quietly. That's why you don't experience it. It's a story you're telling yourself. Why is it a story? Because out there, we have never experienced it. We have only experienced it in here. And the experience which we have in here depends entirely on the mind. Restless mind, samsara. Calm mind, no samsara. But this is, this is yoga, it's not yet Advaita. All of this in the mind now, no external world, in Chittakasha, in the space of the mind, all of it is shining in light, in consciousness, in awareness. Think about it. Thoughts come and go, you are aware of them. Emotions come and go, you are aware of them. Memories come and go. You can remember, sometimes you cannot remember. A person with Parkinson's was telling me, I have this fits of 
annoyance and irritation because I can't remember. I know I, I know it, but I can't I can't recall it. You are the same consciousness which was able which which witnessed a sharp mind able to remember and recall. And you're the same consciousness in which that mind no longer has the ability to recall. Remain calm. Nothing has changed in you. It's the mind. It's slowing down because of the age of the body. It's connected to the body. Everything that the mind does, all our experiences in the mind are shining in the consciousness which we are. Chidakasha. This is the process of Jnana Yoga. Reduce the Mahakasha, physical universe, into Chittakasha, mental universe. Reduce the mental universe, Chittakasha, into Chidakasha, consciousness. Universe to mind to consciousness. How do I reduce? Recognize it. You don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to blink an eye. Recognize the entire physical universe which we experience all our lives is in our minds. That's all. And recognize whatever we experience in our minds. Sight, smell, touch, taste, memories, emotions, ideas, desires, suffering, happiness. All of that shines in consciousness. That consciousness you are. Chidakasha. So, Jnanam Mityuchyate Budhai. This, all of this, whatever I said from the beginning of the class till now, this indeed is knowledge. The rest is ignorance. No matter all the syllabus of UCLA, USC and all that, huge syllabus or all that, Sri Ramakrishna says, Eker Gan Gan, Oneker Gan Ok Gan. The knowledge of the one, the one is this luminous space of consciousness. The knowledge of that is, is knowledge. Everything else is ignorance. Ignorance from a spiritual point of view. Of course you must get your college degree, you've paid so much for it. So, uh, yes, a very expensive ignorance. <laughs> incur enormous student loans to get, to, get, to get that ignorance. But this knowledge is free. It's always there and always available, whenever you want it. So this is knowledge. The knowledge of the one is knowledge. Knowledge of the many is ignorance. Jnanam ityutyate budhi. The wise call this knowledge. All right. I'll take one or two questions. We have just time for questions. Mike. Do we wait for the microphone? Thank you, Swami. When we're actually dreaming, where is consciousness? Are we aware when we're actually dreaming during the event itself? When we are actually dreaming, where is consciousness? S swivel the question around. Your dream is in consciousness. Ask the question, where is the dream? Where is the dream? The first answer will be, which nobody can deny, the dream is in your mind. After waking up, do we think that we went to Delhi or China or Africa? No. We said, I was sleeping in my bed in LA, but my mind imagined all those things and set up a dream for me. So the dream was in the mind. And where is the mind? Where do you experience the mind? Don't say in the body. We uh, experience the mind in consciousness. So the dream is always in consciousness. This first time, then we'll come to you. Since Brahman is formless, Yes. And all knowledge is that knowledge that we, that we have, have a form in a way. Yes. How can we have a knowledge of a formless? Oh, I was hoping to do the 26th verse. It would have answered your question very precisely. There's a term called nirabhasa in 26th verse. The whole idea of those who are, um, you know, those who study Advaita deeply, phalavyapti, vrittivyapti, all those things will come up. Precisely what happens in Brahma Jnana. There is a very precise formulation. What happens in the knowledge of Brahman? When we speak about knowledge of Brahman, how is it knowledge and how is it not knowledge? How is it different from all the knowledge of form which we experience all the time? We'll leave it for next time. It's, uh, 
I mean, just I was thinking, just to explain that one term which is coming in the 26th verse, I'll require one whole class. Yeah. Question? Yes. So, um, like, how, what is the difference between, like, detachment and, and apathy? And, like, is something that, is detachment something that you gain once you get enlightened, or is it something you do before? Right. Good question. What's the difference between detachment and apathy? And what is, do you get detached when you get enlightened, or do you, do you get it before enlightenment? Um, yes, there's a very big difference between detachment and apathy. Detachment, there are two levels. One is the level of spiritual practice, and one is the reality itself. The reality itself is, you are pure consciousness. And whatever appears in pure consciousness, you are actually all the time detached from it. For example, the rope which is mistaken for a snake, that snake, is it in some way attached to the rope? Isn't the rope completely detached from that snake? Because that snake does not e exist. The false and the real are never attached. The real is ever detached from the false. And yet it serves a ground for the false. Example, I'll give you this. It sounds technical, but very simple. The movie example we gave. The screen on which the movie is played is completely detached from the movie. It's quite indifferent to what movie you play on it. It could be a comedy, it could be a tragedy, it could be an award winner, it could be a flop, it could be a classic, it could be a latest movie, whatever. The screen is absolutely indifferent to it. Not in the sense that it is something material and cannot think, not in that sense. You can play whatever movie on it. Movies come and go, the screen remains the same. In that sense, in that sense, consciousness is not attached to its con contents. Whatever arises in consciousness shines there, subsides again into consciousness. Consciousness is detached from it. The term used um, in Sanskrit is asanga, asanga not attached. Things come and go. We, the consciousness, are not attached. What Advaita Vedanta asks us to, just asks us to notice, is that we are already unattached. Which person, which thing, which event, which pleasure, which pain, which illness have you ever been able to hold on to? In your life, nothing. Nothing. Even the body we cannot hold on to. The Bible says, who by his own efforts can extend his span of life by even a moment? You cannot do it. We cannot hold on to anything because, and that's a good thing, because we are consciousness in which these things are appearing and disappearing. Imagine what kind of a movie theater it would be if parts of a movie you know, which the screen liked remained behind, how it would interfere with the next movie. So if by the time a third or fourth movie is played, the whole thing would be a jumble. <laughs> if the screen had the, the, the autonomy of holding on to what it liked. So, that's one point. The ultimate truth is, we are detached. What we really are is completely detached. But that does not prevent the, the screen from playing the movies. The screen can, of course, though, it's the screen alone which enables the movies to be played. It's consciousness which alone which enables the samsara to exist. The samsara would not exist without you. It's in you and because of you, you give lend reality and substance and light and meaning to the samsara. The whole play goes on because of you, in you. And yet you are completely detached from it. That's your great power. And that's what Advaita Vedanta is pointing out to us. Let's come one step down from the high philosophy. In spiritual life, it's a good practice. Your question was, is it a practice before enlightenment or after enlightenment? Before enlightenment also, it can be a practice. That's what we deliberately do. Because why is it, why do we deliberately do that? Because we have an automatic tendency to cling. I want to hold on to the people, the things and experiences I love, and somehow I want to escape the things and the people and the experiences I do not like. To lessen this tendency, we practice detachment. Just to lessen this tendency. Not to run away from anything. You cannot run away from it. Why can't you run away from it? Because if you look at it from Advaita point of view, the whole thing is taking place in you. Where will you run away? It's in you. Is it apathy? 
Apathy and detachment, spiritual detachment and apathy are completely different. Apathy, it can, sometimes spiritual practice can parade, masquerade as apathy. There was one Swami who, um, Chundikanandaji Maharaj, I heard this story about him. He's a great songwriter and a very senior Swami. But when he was a young brahmachari, when he joined the order in Chargachi, and he was sitting in the prayer room and meditating at 10 o'clock in the morning when you're supposed to go and work. He'd probably gotten up late and he didn't meditate and when he felt like it, he went and sat down to meditate. And Swami Akhandanandaji, the disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, he shouts from outside or he told, told somebody, go and tell that brahmachari that instead of polluting the prayer room, he can come out and, and water the plants. That's being apathetic, you know, that I am meditating, don't disturb me. Who will do the cooking, who will do the watering the plants, who will take care of all the other business of, whether it's a home or an ashram or an office. No, don't bother me, I'm meditating. That's apathy. Spiritual knowledge, non-dual knowledge, Advaita, is not against action. You can perform all actions in, in non-duality, in, in, in Advaita. Proof is the great enlightened masters. Look at Vivekananda. Look at Akhandananda himself and so many others. Great example is Sri Ramakrishna himself. Tremendous effort, tremendous activity can go on with the complete peace. So Vivekananda said the ideal is intense, um, complete serenity in the midst of intense activity. Yeah, that's possible on the basis of non-duality. Yeah, it's not apathy. Are we done? Yes. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu